Hello everyone, welcome back. Uh, as you can see, I a little bit of a change of venue from my Jeep. Uh, we are traveling for the holidays, as probably many of you are, so my in-laws were nice enough to let me film in their garage. So we'll see how the cell service is. It's showing only like, I think, yeah, one bar, even though it says 5G. So anyway, so we'll see what happens there. But um, yeah, I meant to do this last night, but we were on the road for like 10 hours. And it'll be a similar situation this coming weekend, so we'll see if I do the live stream on Sunday night or Sunday morning, I don't know. Um, anyway, we've got a lot to get through. I just did a kind of a run-through of, of my outline here, and I only got through like half my material. Um, so it means I guess I'm ready for next Sunday. But So what we're going to be talking about tonight is the Democratic debate, number five, and kind of what were some of the, the takeaways from it, and then maybe one of the more broad... Um, takeaways that we could have based on what took place and afterwards. Uh, we're also going to be talking about kind of an update on some of the homeless stuff in California. Uh, I did a video where I talked about that uh, I think a month or two ago and um, I wanted to dig into some of the other stuff that's taking place um, with the, the homeless situation in California and some of the factors that might be contributing to that. Um, so we're going to talk about that and then lastly uh, we will talk about impeachment. I'm not super excited to talk about impeachment but I kind of want to give you a lens with which I'm viewing it right now. Um, it might inform kind of what how you could think about it or think about like where things are right now and not necessarily going forward, but kind of where it, it is now and where it has been, um, barring any new evidence type stuff. Uh, so we'll get into that as well. Um, so first off, so the debates. So these debates were terrible. They were super duper boring. Uh, they had some of the lowest viewership of any of these things. Um, they just, it wasn't super interesting, and I think there's a couple reasons for that. Um, one of them is because they didn't really debate about anything. You know, all they did was talk about how much they agreed on everything. Um, but I think the other reason is that they didn't really address one of the bigger issues. But we'll get into that here in a second. Um, broadly, I think one of the best barometers, as weird as this is, for how it was received and where the Democratic base is is actually Saturday Night Live and some of the skits they do. Again, this is a really general. I'm just talking about the, the Democratic base more broadly, and not necessarily, maybe like your average type Democrat. Um, and they usually are not super uh, secretive about which candidate they really like and which candidates they don't like as much. You can tell in how they make fun of them, um, or if they do or don't make fun of them, or if they even mention them at all, etc. And... So I'm, I want to tell you a little bit about a skit three weeks ago and then kind of the one they just did. And I think it's a good barometer of where things are. So like three weeks ago, they did this cold open skit with Elizabeth Warren. So Kate McKinnon plays Elizabeth Warren. Um, and it was so bad. It was so unfunny. I swear, it, you would think that it was like her campaign had come up with like, okay, we're going to do a skit to try and appeal to voters. Like it, it had like maybe one or two funny jokes in it, but really it was mostly about trying to get people excited about Elizabeth Warren, trying to get people excited about Medicare for All. Um, it was really, really unfunny, really bad, but it showed that they were really excited about Elizabeth Warren, which is fine. They can do that. That's fine. Flash forward three weeks to just yesterday to SNL um, when they did their skit after the last round of debates, they were not near as friendly towards Elizabeth Warren uh, or, or her character, Kate, Kate McKinnon playing her. They didn't really seem enthusiastic about anyone, um, but they actually made a joke about her that I think was kind of a legitimate criticism. So, you know, it's coming up on Thanksgiving, and they had a joke where Kate McKinnon said that she was going to be making the, the dish of her ancestors, and she, she's like, should I say it? Should I say it? Uh, I'm going to be making maize, you know, which is a joke. It's a jab at her claiming to be Native American for so long. And I think that's kind of a legit criticism. You know, it's it's not, oh, I'm kind of awkward and kooky and not really relatable like they have done with her, they did with Hillary Clinton whenever Kate McKinnon played her in the last election. Um, that's a legit criticism. It's like, hey, you pretended to be Native American. Like, most times if you like someone, you're, you're going to not bring up things that are legitimately kind of scandalous about them. Um, but they brought that up and they had no problem doing that. And so that kind of tells me that they've cooled on Elizabeth Warren, as have a lot of people after she's released, like her Medicare for All plan and her wealth tax, um, some of these just absurd plans that she's put out there. Um, people have cooled. No one's super excited about any of the Democratic candidates right now. 
And so as kind of silly as that is talking about the SNL skit, I do think it's a barometer for where the, the Democratic voter base is now generally. You know, one thing that was fascinating is um, before the debate, they had the pundits on there talking about what to expect and where things are. And they had this woman who said that, you know, the late entry, so uh, Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York, and Deval Patrick, I think he's the governor of Massachusetts, I believe, um, th their late entry into it actually talked about how weak Trump is as a candidate, as opposed to how weak this field of Democratic uh, primary candidates is. And I think that that is really naive and silly uh, to assume. But regardless, I don't think most people see it that way. That's why Deval Patrick jumped in. That's why Bloomberg jumped in. That's why Obama's been criticizing them is because it is a weak field of candidates. Um, so we'll get into some of the specifics from the debate. And then I want to talk about something that happened afterwards that I think is a lot more telling and that we can learn from that, um, that kind of tells where things really are. So some key takeaways. So the polls have not changed, really. Um, the, they pretty much stayed the same. Biden's at about 30 Warren and Sanders are both at about 19. Harris is at four. Buttigieg is around eight. I think Bloomberg is pulling somewhere around three, which is above Cory Booker and Tulsi Gabbard and Amy Klobuchar, which is kind of interesting. Um, but anyway, the polls haven't changed. The needle hasn't really shifted on any of the candidates. Um, Pete Buttigieg did field some attacks. People expected him to be attacked, which is kind of an interesting scenario because he's leading in Iowa right now. And Iowa is the first one of the primaries that they have. And, you know, Biden can afford to lose Iowa based on the polls because he has the highest amount of black support of any of the candidates. So there's Iowa, New Hampshire, and then you go into the South. And Biden could probably lose Iowa, New Hampshire, and if he swept the South and did good in these other states, he's fine. But there are some of these other candidates that are barely hanging on that need to do well in Iowa. So they're attacking Buttigieg, even though Buttigieg, he might do well in Iowa, he might do well in New Hampshire, Buttigieg has zero black support. He's not going to win the nomination because of that. But so they have to attack someone who won't be the nominee so that they can hang in there, which is really good for Joe Biden because he's the default frontrunner right now. And so they're not attacking him. They're attacking someone so they had the opportunity, you know, to attack him. Um, anyway, so Buttigieg was, you know, fielded some attacks. He did a good job. He did a good job um, kind of defending himself, defending his policies. One of the people that levied the most criticisms against him was Amy Klobuchar, uh, and she did a good job there. I think she made her case that she was, you know, again, that she's the a moderate in this race. She's a viable option. Um, Warren didn't really get attacked. She spent most of the night on defense, like bringing up her wealth tax and questions that didn't have anything to do with it because she knows it's not popular. So she received a lot of criticism prior to this, and she was just playing defense the whole night. I think her numbers actually slid a little bit after the debate. Um, particularly in Iowa, New Hampshire. So her candidacy is on the decline. Um, and so she, you know, she didn't really have much of a role in the debate because she was just trying to keep people, not even necessarily get more supporters. Um, Tulsi, Harris, and Yang, they didn't have the impact they needed to in order to move the needle, um, but they did all right. Andrew Yang didn't get very much speaking time. He's pretty pissed off at MSNBC. I think rightfully so. You know, he's demanded a public apology before he participates in another debate. I don't know how I feel about that. It's kind of like you could just say, well, yeah, I'm not going to do it. Um, it's not unless you apologize. It's kind of like when you have two kids that are fighting and you tell one to go say sorry. It's like, well, how genuine is that? But anyway, I don't think it's enough to move the needle. Same with uh, Klobuchar. Um, but her biggest moment, in my opinion, came after the debate. And so, um, but we'll, we'll talk about that here in a second. So the impeachment was a big theme. So there's two takeaways. Impeachment was a big theme. And I think one of the reasons for that was because they know it's a weak field. Um, they spent most of the time talking about how much they don't like Trump and how impeachment is because they, I think one thing is that they understand. And the same way with, you know, the Trump campaign has been releasing some videos lately um, about the, the Democratic kind of their, their platform. Um, I think that both sides understand to some degree, you know, obviously Trump has his people that are going to vote for him no matter what. There are going to be people that are excited and they're going to vote Democrat no matter what. But for the majority of people, I think they understand that it's really going to boil down to how many people are motivated by their opposition to the other side, not necessarily their support of the candidate um, that they would be voting for. So I think that there are Democrats that understand that a lot of people that are going to vote for them are really going to vote for them because 
they are so sick of Donald Trump or they've been so polarized or turned off by him, his personality, rhetoric, whatever, or the general kind of chaos they feel. And so they're not necessarily going to vote for that candidate because they're just really excited for Joe Biden or whatever. Um, but they just don't want Trump anymore. And I think there's a lot of people on the right who they might not be enthusiastic about Trump, but they are incredibly turned off by the progressive kind of, again, the platform of the policies they're pushing right now. So it'll be interesting to see who ends up winning out from that. But I think that both sides understand that. Um, so that's the first one. They talked about impeachment a lot, not so much about policy difference. Uh, and the, the second thing I think is, a, is the main takeaway is I think this is a broader issue. So in my video I did like eight days ago, I talked about how Obama had been speaking up more and criticizing the kind of the progressive wing of the party and saying we need to be careful here. We're going to polarize voters. We're going to turn people off to our, to our agenda. Um, we need to, it, the, one of the things he said is we need to be cautious of going too far to the left. And I talked about how too far left trended on Twitter for a while. And then it immediately shifted to too far right because progressives are basically done with Obama. Um, and I think that's telling in and of itself. But one of the things I was curious about is, okay, here's a guy who knows what he's talking about. He was, you know, kind of emblematic of the progressive movement of Democrats for a long time. And he's been, you know, bringing up these criticisms. Are they going to talk about it? You know, they have these segments during the debates where they talk about health care and gun reform and uh, inequality or whatever foreign policy. And I, and I thought they need to have a segment where they talk about what does it look like to go too far left? Are we at risk of doing that? Here's what Obama said. What do each of you think about this? Um, CNN's done town halls on everything. They've done town halls on gender. They've done town halls on climate change. They've done town halls on guns, town halls on healthcare, whatever. And that's fine. Those are big parts of the current, I guess, political debate right now. But th they need to do not one, multiple town halls on are we going too far left as a party? Are we at risk of being perceived as going too far left? What does it look like to go too far left? Because it is obviously possible to do that. You know, I don't, I don't think generally that people even think that's possible. Um, and it's, but it is, and it's polarizing a lot of voters and turning them against the Democratic Party. And so they need to be talking about that. And so I was wondering, will they talk about that? Uh, spoiler alert, they didn't. Um, the, the moderators barely brought it up. Um, it was kind of some vague questions. A few of the candidates gave some kind of lip service to the comments by Obama. Pete Buttigieg did. Um, Bernie Sanders was the second one to do it, and he did it in a way that I think was pretty tactful. Um, but anyway, it wasn't a big part of it. Instead, they talked about you know all of the other things that they talk about every single time. And maybe that was one reason why people didn't tune in is because it's, this is the same conversation. You all agree, we get it, except for on healthcare. So, you know, what? like, what is the point of this? A debate is so we can find out how you're different, not how you all hate Trump. Okay, cool. So anyway, but after the debate, there was a three-minute interview between Amy Klobuchar and Chris Matthews of MSNBC. And I think that that three-minute interview, weirdly enough, had more substance than the previous three hours did in the debate they had. And I think it's actually... It's, it's worth digging into. It's worth digging into. So I, I transcribed this thing. It's, it, it's a little long, but it's worth talking about. So anyway, so Matthew's talking to Amy Klobuchar. He says, quote, I noticed something that is growing in each debate, and it's a real San Andreas fault within the Democratic Party. You can talk all about how you don't like Trump and want to get rid of him, but Bernie won't agree to that. His first chance tonight, and he basically said, this isn't about getting rid of Trump. It's about my big social Democrat revolution I want to start and going through the same old litany of numbers. He doesn't accept your argument that you have to appeal to moderates. You got to get some moderate to center left Democrats. You need centrists and some Republicans. And you and Buttigieg and the former vice president all argued that you have to go for a larger audience than just the hard left. And he, talking about Sanders, he doesn't accept that. And Elizabeth Warren damn well doesn't accept it either. That's the fight, isn't it? And Klobuchar says, it is. And in the end, I think we're going to unify our party. Matthews, which way? Who's going to win? Moderates or the left? Klobuchar, we've done it in the past elections, and what unites us is so much stronger than what divides us. I don't agree with that, and I'll talk about why here in a second. What I don't like about this <clears throat> is look at what just happened in Kentucky and Virginia. 
and they continue to make the case for free everything. I know these things sound good on a bumper sticker, and maybe they want to throw in a free car too, but I don't think that's what people want. They want a fair shake. They want opportunity. Matthews, what do you think when you hear a candidate say, I'm going to get you free preschool, and we're going to pay for it all across the country, and I'm going to take care of your student loans. We're going to have health care, if not immediately, within three years, and everybody's going to get free health care. Klobuchar, we need to match education with the jobs in the economy. The fastest growing degrees are one and two year degrees. We do not have a shortage of CEOs or MBAs. We have a shortage of plumbers. That's the case I want to make. These are bold plans, just different from theirs. They do not have a monopoly on good ideas. Matthews asked a question here that I think is really, a, it's a good question. Is the left being honest? And Matthew says that as a, he's a partisan. He's on the left very clearly. That's fine. But he's saying, is the left being honest with these types of policies? Klobuchar, I think they're being honest about what they want to do, and I have a lot of respect for them. I just see a different way. Matthews, the moderates will win. Klobuchar, we have to win big. Matthews, there you have it. I'm glad I got the fight right. So there is a more substantive exchange about what's going on within the Democratic Party and the culture more broadly. They're in three minutes between Chris Matthews and Amy Klobuchar, who's polling at 2%, than anything that happened in that debate. And I think the, the question he asks after his initial premise there is, is the, the important one. He says, that's the fight, isn't it? There are those who understand that we have to appeal to more than just the loud people on Twitter, and there are those that don't understand that. That's the fight. And so, and Klobuchar acknowledges that, but they didn't talk about that during the debate, really. They didn't talk about that that is as the fundamental issue. And I do think it's worth saying on the front end, before I dig deeper into that, that him picking on Bernie's answer there, um, I, I don't necessarily agree with because what he's saying is that Bernie didn't want to talk about how much he hates Trump. He wanted to talk about his agenda. And Buttigieg made the same statement. Buttigieg said, you know, I'm running to be president for the day after Trump leaves office. In other words, yeah, okay, we want to get rid of Trump, but then we also have to govern, and here's how I want to govern. So I don't think that's a fair criticism of Bernie. In fact, I think that what he said there is good, where he's like, okay, that's fine, but we should govern. Again, I don't agree with his vision of that, but it's a substantive answer. Regardless, um, the main thing that Matthews is saying there is that we <laughs> there is a rift. He says there's a San Andreas fault-sized rift. You know, we're seeing it in the healthcare debate, but he understands that there are people, and I think establishment Democrats are waking up to this, Democrats in the media are waking up to this, Barack Obama, for example, you know, this is what he's been criticizing against. They're waking up to this. They're saying, look, we can't just appeal to this loud part of our uh, base on Twitter. You know, we have to appeal to everyone. And what I think that some of them are starting to wake up to, and what I think is Probably one of the most important aspects of this is that there's a reality here that they're not addressing, but that they need to address. And that reality is that the, you know, currently the fight that he's talking about between like Bernie Sanders and, you know, Klobuchar, Biden, whatever, this isn't like differing degrees of things. This is not um, different opinions here, for example. Uh, these are two different visions. And the vision of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is completely incompatible with the vision of Nancy Pelosi, Barack Obama, Amy Klobuchar, Joe Biden, whatever. They aren't just two kind of different things. One of them might have different views on social stuff, you know, so Amy Klobuchar wants to enshrine Roe v. Wade and in implement these kind of uh, purity tests with judges. You know, I don't agree with that, but that's a... That's a social thing. Okay, um, there, there are differences on tax rates in different areas. Okay, that's fine. We can have that debate. There's this other vision that is that they are allowing to gain ascendancy in their party that says, we're going to massively change this government, this place as we know it. We're going to restructure it. You know, that's what Elizabeth Warren says. We need big structural change. We're going to dramatically increase the size of the federal government so that it can do this, 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 and this. These are fundamentally different visions. You know, whenever, going back to the healthcare thing, when Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders says, yeah, we're going to 
outlaw your private health insurance to where you can only get health insurance from the government. That's a different vision. That is an ideological vision. That's not just different policy. That's saying we're going to get rid of this private industry and we're not going to try and fix it or make it better or make it easier for companies to compete. We want the government to provide this for you and the government's going to do this and this and this and this. And this. Those are entirely different visions for the country and they need to start addressing this. And because one side's going to win, they are, that's why I'm saying it's important to understand these are incompatible. They're incompatible. And until they start having that debate, that too far left debate that Obama has talked about, and until they start doing that, there's no reason to have any of these other debates because all the policy it, like disagreements stem from that ideological difference. Um, so anyway, until they start talking about that, until they start paying attention to the warnings that Obama's given, until they start addressing the incompatible visions of the country, then I think that people are going to continue to tune out. Now, one thing I will say is that Michael Bloomberg and Deval Patrick jumping into the race, both of these guys are supposed to represent kind of a centrist approach. You know, Bloomberg is, an, he's another super rich guy. I don't think this is a good time to be a, a rich person, uh, especially in the Democratic Party. You know, again, it's, it's not about helping the poor, it's about hating the rich. At least that's the perception for a lot of people. And so, you know, and Elizabeth Warren and others have been just lobbing criticisms at Bloomberg for buying up ads. It's like, oh, he's buying advertising. Who cares, you know? But um, I'm not as worried about Bloomberg. I don't, I don't think he'll really make much of a difference. He might change the tone a little bit. Deval Patrick, I am really interested in. He, he said that he wants to be president of the woke, but also of those waking up. So he wants to bridge the gap between... Those who understand, you know, they're woke, they understand this oppressive, crazy, horrible capitalist system we live in and how evil it is, and then those who are still coming around to that view. And so, you know, there's different ways to interpret that, but I think it'll be interesting to see what kind of appeal he makes. You know, again, I've said in the past, people, I, I, from the very beginning, I said, I don't think that the establishment or the average Democratic voter is necessarily attached to Joe Biden, but they're attached to what he represents in their mind which is some type of return to normalcy, which is some type of centrist, broad appeal approach. Um, and so if there's someone else who can put forth that vision in a popular way, I think the establishment will shift um, support over to that person. I predicted that with Amy Klobuchar. It hasn't happened, as, even though they are trying. Um, I think that she could win just as, she has just as much of a chance to win as any of them. Uh, they could potentially do that with Deval Patrick. I don't think they do it with Bloomberg, but they could do that with Deval Patrick as well. Um, one last thing about the debates and about the where the candidates are generally, kind of a fascinating thing. Uh, I was listening to an interview between Scott Adams and Dave Rubin the other day, and Scott Adams said that he actually th thinks that the top three candidates who are polling are unelectable. And I agree with that about Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. I don't think they would win in a general election. Uh, but the idea of that with Joe Biden was really interesting to me. And w the way he explained that was he said, you know, look, have you ever met a Biden supporter? Have you? Now, you might have met people who said he seems okay, but, you know, people that have Biden bumper stickers and Biden signs in their yard, they're few and far between. You know, I've seen more signs and more stuff for Andrew Yang, who's polling at 4%, than Biden, who's polling at, what is that, seven and a half times that? Um, and so the conclusion Scott Adams had was, well, whenever they're doing these polls, there are people who just go off name recognition. They're not like the excited people to get out there and vote. And they just recognize Biden's name and they don't know, you know, who Cory Booker is necessarily. And so, but those aren't the people who are going to be super motivated to go and vote. And so, you know, those three are probably unelectable as a result of that. And, you know, I don't know if that's true or not, but I do think it's an interesting kind of thought experiment of have you ever met a Biden supporter, someone who's really excited about Joe Biden, or is it just that exhausted majority out there who's just like, sure, why not? Um, if you're, if the primary people who are supporting you are sure, why not? Good luck, man. You know, that's, you're, you're not going to win. That's not a winning strategy. Um, anyway, so that's where that stands. Uh, again, I'll keep you posted as there's more information developing with, with the candidates. Uh, so, all right, next thing on to California. So I did a video, like I said earlier, um, about the homeless, homeless issue in California. And I went through an article by... I think was his name, and looked at, you know, what are some of the things that they're doing to try and address the issue of homelessness, how effective is it, etc. And so I kind of want to revisit that because there's been a couple interesting things 
happening here and just talk generally because as we're talking about policy, as we're thinking about policy proposals that candidates are making or different parties are putting forth, whatever, um, I think that this is a good kind of, you know, zoom down of an example of how policies can have really good intentions, which I believe that they do in this case, but the outcomes don't line up with those intentions. So to recap some of the stuff from that previous one, um, I talked about how in 2018, the city of Los Angeles spent $619 million to end homelessness in Los Angeles. $619 million in 2018, in one year, um, just that city alone. And the end result was that the home, homeless, homeless population, it increased by 12%. Um, and so in fact that I, I did the math of like, okay, how many people were homeless in LA in 2018 and the average amount of money they spent per person per homeless per person that includes so they uh sheltered and unsheltered so homeless people that had a place to go and homeless people that didn't um the average money was eleven thousand seven hundred thirty one dollars per person and that doesn't include federal programs that doesn't include charities etc um, i do think it's kind of interesting as a side note that that number is pretty close to how much people would potentially receive under Andrew Yang's freedom dividend, which is $12,000 a year. Um, that's a whole other can of worms, but I do want to talk about that at some point because I think that policy is um, actually pretty dangerous. Anyway, so they spent a ridiculous amount of money to combat homelessness. And what happened? The population of homeless people went up by 12% to around 60,000 homeless people in LA County alone. So the point is there's a huge problem there. And, and I've been thinking about the idea of incentives. I really like economics and just the way it helps, I guess, provide another lens of the way you can look at things in the world and society more generally. But one of the, the things in economics that's fascinating is we talk about how there's, there's two fundamental modes of human change, of, or of changing human behavior. And those modes are um, changing the incentive structure and changing temperament. So an example of changing temperament would be uh, instead of putting signs everywhere and having highway patrolmen sit on the highways, uh, instead of doing that, just doing these big education programs or talking about it in school and just convincing people that it's immoral to speed, that it's immoral to go a certain speed limit, and maybe say, well, here's the highway speed limit, here's the city speed limit, and we're just going to trust that, you, that you're going to do the right thing and not go over this speed limit, okay? And we're gonna try and change, in other words, human temperament. We're gonna try and change their internal desires here, basically. Um, and I suppose that's one way you could do that, and maybe there are certain cir circumstances where that's what you wanna do. But an example of using incentives or disincentives would be saying, you know, it doesn't really matter what your moral view of the speed limit is, we're gonna make it to where if you get pulled over speeding in a school zone, if it, you know the speed limit's 15 and you're going 40 or 50 miles an hour, the ticket is gonna be astronomical and you might lose your license. So that's implementing a disincentive that is saying, look, it doesn't matter how you feel about this, but we're gonna put the structures in place to get you to make this decision regardless of how you feel about it. So those, those are two different ways of viewing it. One of them is changing, that, that's kind of that engineering society, societal engineering. Um, that I think is completely farcical, but is like the theme of lots of utopian books and novels. And the other one is just putting in an incentive structure to make people want to do this because it'll benefit them to do it, or it will, you know, conversely hurt them enough if they don't do it that they that they just make the decision that's whatever is desired. It's kind of that carrot stick um, mentality. So anyway, so going back to these cities specifically and what's going on. So San Francisco, for example, so when you think about incentives, um, be thinking about that as we're talking about these issues. So San Francisco is a city um, that has had a public defecation problem that is so bad um, that they had to hire all new city employees to go and their whole job, this is a whole new task force, to go and just pick up human crap off the streets. And there's another part of that that they hired people to pick up needles off the streets because of these needle exchange programs they have, but they don't enforce the exchange part of it. So people just come and get needles and then they shoot up and they leave the needles and go get more clean needles. Um, anyway, but these are people that are, it's brand new city employees. 
paid for by the taxpayers to go out and clean human crap off the sidewalks. And so you would think that if that's a problem where there's so many people crapping on the sidewalk, that we're hiring new employees, paying for their benefits, we have a new part of the bureaucracy to deal with, that we would take this seriously. You would think so, right? Well, you would be wrong. Here's a quote from San Francisco's new DA that just was sworn in not that long ago. Quote, we will not prosecute cases involving quality of life crimes, he said. Crimes such as public camping, that's a heck of a euphemism for just sleeping wherever you want, public camping, offering or soliciting sex, public urination, and that includes defecation, he just didn't say it, blocking a sidewalk, etc., should not and will not be prosecuted. Many of these crimes are still being prosecuted, and we have a long way to go to decriminalize poverty and homelessness. Now that's a bit of a bait and switch because he's saying by making it illegal for someone to crap on the sidewalk, that's criminalizing poverty and homelessness. As if, if you're homeless, it's somehow axiomatically true that you're going to just crap on the sidewalk. That that's just who you are and what you do. That decriminalizing, offering sex for money, you know, if there's a mom walking with her kid and some bum walks up to her and says, hey, you know, I'll get whatever for money, you know, that that is somehow decriminalizing poverty as opposed to decriminalizing degenerate behavior. Um, anyway, so again, think about incentive structure. So that it was so bad that they had to hire employees to come and do like a poop patrol type thing. And instead of saying, oh, well, maybe this is so bad, we need to do something about this. They said, we're going to actually decriminalize it. We're going to make it really easy, in other words, for you to be homeless. We're going to make it easy. You can sleep wherever you want. You can crap on the sidewalk. You can do any of these things. We're going to make it easy. So again, if you're thinking about, I want to end homelessness, you would think you would want to make it hard to be homeless, right? You would want to make it hard to be homeless and easy to rise up out of that condition. You want to implement a system where people, if they want to, that they can work, they have their, they can make connections with this office or this group, whatever, to where they can work out of that situation. Or you want to make it hard to be homeless to where it's like, yeah, we're not going to let you just crap and piss anywhere you want. Um, anyway, that's what you would think. Uh, so again, it's incentives, but it sounds like they're making it easier for people to be homeless. Uh, the other thing they did here, so again, we're thinking about incentives. Um, they made it, we're making it easier to, as, as a lifestyle is they recently passed this thing uh, called Prop 47. Now, this was passed in 2014, so it's about five years old. But anytime something like this is passed, you need a couple of years to get some data on it. And what has happened is that what Prop 47 did is it made it to where if you were stealing some, so they implemented a number of $950. And it, whereas previously that was a felony, now it's a misdemeanor if you steal something $950 or less, or maybe it's less than, I think it's so less than, you just get a ticket, basically. You're not going to go to jail or anything like that if you steal something less than 950 bucks. And what has happened is that San Francisco is now, of the um, the cities, the biggest cities in the country, they rank number one in property crime, which includes theft. And there are some people, I read a, a I think it was an LA Times uh, op-ed that said, well, no, they didn't make it to where you can steal stuff. It's still legal to break into someone's house. But that's not where this is happening. What's happened in the wake of this Prop 47 is people every, you know, maybe two or three times a month, they can they know they can go into stores or certain items that they've identified. They can go in there under the auspices of shopping, but they just steal something. They take it out and they there has been these whole rings of like fences, which are the people who take buy the stolen thing and then redistribute it, where there's these rings that have propped up where people are keeping the or taking stealing stuff as a it's a basically a job so they've made it to where again it, this is a viable lifestyle where you can go and steal stuff from these stores sell it to the fence you know you get a couple hundred bucks do this a couple times a month and you know you can sleep where you want you can crap where you want you can piss where you want you can go solicit sex to someone walking down the sidewalk with their kid assuming they're even able to because blocking the sidewalk is no longer a crime public camping, you know, all this other stuff. So here's the question I have. If your goal is to end homelessness, does the, do these sound like policies that are going to end homelessness? Again, you want to make it easier for people to rise out of being homeless and you want to make it hard for them to stay there. 
You know, there are certainly people that do not want to be in that situation and you want to, them to have the tools at their disposal to get out of that horrible situation. But there are also people who choose that. Again, I, I talked about this in the video that I did before. It's, this is anecdotal, but the people they talked about, like Machete Mike was a guy that was referenced. There's a whole culture of people that choose this. I picked up these two hitchhikers. Um, I used to do this more and then my wife is like, hey, you, you gotta stop. But anyway, this was their lifestyle, you know, they told me all about it. I mean, I, they were in the car for, I think, 45 minutes to an hour, passing a, a bottle of Mountain Dew Code Red back and forth that I found out had a bunch of Everclear in it, their patchwork clothes and everything, and they like doing drugs, and they like partying, and that's what they, that was their vagabond lifestyle. And that's their choice, but, but the, I think, in my opinion, the goal should be to make that choice as minimally burdensome as those who don't want to make that choice. Um, so anyway, but there are people who choose that. And so you want to make it hard or at least not burdensome on the citizenry for people to make that choice. You want to make it easy for the, for people who aren't that to rise out of it. But instead they've implemented these policies where you can do all these things. You can actually steal stuff and get income relatively easily. And it's, and it becomes a viable lifestyle choice. And so kind of in conclusion, thinking about as there are policies that are talked about um, now, you know, with the Democratic primaries or on the other side as Republicans run counter uh, counterattack or ads or whatever for Trump's campaign, just understand that, you know, I firmly believe or this new DA in San Francisco, people or policies that are motivated by compassion. I think that, you know, to, to believe that these are folks that want people to stay entrenched in poverty and homelessness, you know, I, I just don't believe that. Um, kind of at, at some point doesn't matter what the intentions are if the outcome is making it easy for people to be homeless. If the outcome is the opposite of compassion, if the outcome is increase in homelessness, like what, uh, after spending $619 million, that's not really compassionate. It's not compassionate on the homeless by making that just a viable option for them to, to do that instead of making it easier for them to rise out of that. And I also would say it's not compassionate on the general citizenry who are paying for all of this stuff. You know, if you're a regular citizen living in San Francisco, you have tax money going to putting dirty needles on the street. They're, they've made it to where on the sidewalk and piss on the sidewalk, and they're not going to be penalized for that. They have made it where people can steal stuff from business owners who are just trying to run their business you know, sleep wherever they want, that's not compassionate on the citizens either. That's not compassionate on the person who's just trying to live their life and go to their job and so on. And so I don't think these policies are compassion, compassionate for either group, even if people might think it feels good to advocate for those things. You know, you can use all the lingo you want of decriminalizing poverty, um, but that's just not what's happening here. They're not decriminalizing poverty. They're incentivizing poor lifestyle choices. They're making it easy for people to do things um, and they're not making it easier for people to rise out of that. Um, and it's not compassionate for anyone. So as as more rhetoric of policies is introduced, interjected into the public sphere, you know, where this just policy or this equitable policy or whatever, you know, always think about, okay, am I judging this by its intentions, which is compassion? Okay, that's fine. I accept that. Or am I judging it by the outcomes? Because all the compassion in the world is irrelevant if you're actually harming those who you say you're trying to help. And so there needs to be something built into any of these things where they say, okay, how are we doing? Do we have a feedback mechanism that tells us if this is working or if it's not working? Um, in other words, judge these things by their outcomes and not by their intentions. And, you know, be fair to those who are putting forth those policies. You know, again, I want to be fair to this DA. I want to be fair the people who wrote Prop 47, I want to be fair to them and say, you know, I do believe they have good intentions, but you have to have a system where you don't judge, just judge things by their intentions. You have to judge them by their outcomes. Um, anyway, all right, so that's the update there. Uh, all right, so this is the last thing we're going to talk about, uh, the impeachment stuff. So, I, you know, I'm not super excited to talk about this just because I don't find it very interesting. Um, I think this stuff is boring. I made a whole video why I don't talk about Donald Trump or much of this stuff at all. But I do think there, there are a few interesting aspects, and I really just want to share with you guys kind of, at least for right now, the lens in which 
I think it's helpful to view this whole thing. And, you know, again, I want to say on the front end that no matter what I say here, don't hear me saying that I don't think that there's things that could be there, that I don't think there's criminal activity that could warrant this. Um, that's not what I'm saying. I'm only judging where we are now and what has happened so far and what's taking place right now. In fact, I think that it's naive to say that there would be no criminal activity that people would want or that would warrant Donald Trump being impeached. In the same way, I really think that that's probably true for every president that's ever lived, probably most governors, um, et cetera, on down the line. You know, that if the, the American public knew every decision and every conversation that every president made, they would say, my God, is that really what's required to be in politics? You know, there's a trope of crooked politicians for a reason. And so it's naive to think that there's nothing there. And, and that's not a dismissal. I'm just saying this is where I think things are now, not where they could go eventually. All right. So anyway, the what I want to look at here is kind of the vernacular and the way they've been discussing, um, the, the way they've been talking about this impeachment and how that has shifted over time, that's what I think is worth diving into because that's where I think we're going to learn about at least where the current state of it is, all right? Um, that's the last time I'm going to put that caveat on there. So anyway, this is from the New York Times. This is about a week ago. Uh, the article was called, so we're going to look at this and then a piece from the Washington Post, but we're mainly going to uh, dive into this New York Times article. Uh, it's called House Democrats Add a Sharper, Simpler Vocabulary. It was written by Cheryl Gay Stolberg, again over at the New York Times. Quote, House Democrats, confident that public support is growing for their impeachment inquiry as they head into a second week of nationally televised hearings, are sharpening their tone as they make their case that President Trump withheld military aid from Ukraine in a bid to force its leader to investigate his political rivals. Quid pro quo is out. Extortion and bribery are in. The shift was inaugurated last week by Speaker Pelosi when she said the devastating testimony delivered by top diplomats corroborated evidence of bribery. On Monday, the Speaker kicked it up a notch using the word extortion to address Republican claims that there was no wrongdoing because Mr. Trump eventually released the aid. Quote, the fact is the aid was only released after the whistleblower exposed the truth of the president's extortion and bribery, she said, in a letter to her Democratic colleagues and the House launched a formal investigation. As lawmakers plunge into a jam-packed hearing scheduled with nine witnesses lined up this week, Ms. Pelosi is clearly trying to tighten the screws on the president and target her message to skeptical voters with words that evoke criminal wrongdoing. In part, her more aggressive language reflects Democrats' realization that their narrative about Ukraine, a story they once thought would be simple for the public to understand, is not as clear-cut as they thought. After a week of dense hearings, Republicans have succeeded somewhat in muddying it up, and many voters are confused while others are not even listening. So I'll, so I'll stop there. I do think it's interesting that she says that the Republicans are muddying it up by poking holes or pointing out inconsistencies here, as opposed to the Democrats aren't making a case. You know, she does kind of allude to it where she says, you know, it's it's they thought that it was going to be simpler than it has turned out to be, which is what I said in my video, I think a week or so ago, you know, that they thought there was going to be something there. It turned out that, they're ha that what they thought they don't actually have. Um, but, you know, the author here is saying that it's Republicans muddying it up, which I, I you know, I, I think that's a bit of a editorial um, reach, but whatever. Uh, anyway, and focus groups, here's the interesting part. And focus groups conducted by the House Democrats arm showed that the party was not helping itself by using the Latin phrase quid pro, quid pro quo, which loosely translates to this for that. Um, and the piece goes on to say that switching the verbiage could potentially backfire on the Democrats. Um, but, so she, so she says, but accusing Mr. Trump of out-and-out -out criminal activity also poses a risk for Democrats because it might lead voters to think that they have prejudged the outcomes of their investigation. The more you look at, the more you look like you've decided what the outcome is, the less effective you are, said Rahm Emanuel, the former mayor of Chicago who worked in the White House when President Bill Clinton was impeached. Oh really? No kidding? Whenever you just randomly throw criminal uh, allegations out there that have different meanings, you might look partisan? Weird. Anyway, here's, here's, here's the interesting part. Celinda Lake, a Democratic pollster, said her research backed that up. 
Voters, she said, were much more comfortable with the word inquiry than impeachment or removal. Other phrases that tested well, she said, were for political gain, abuse of power, and no one is above the law. All of them feature prominently in Ms. Pelosi's impeachment lexicon. Ms. Lake said she was surprised that Ms. Pelosi used the word bribery. Quote, I would have assumed lawyers would say, you can't say that, she said. The article concludes, Whatever words Democrats choose to describe what is clearly a push to Mr. Trump's inevitable impeachment, they've abandoned the Latin quid pro quo. Representative Jan Schakowsky, who holds a safe Democratic seat in Illinois, laughed when asked about it. Oh no, we're not using that word anymore, she said wryly. It's extortion and bribery. Haven't you heard? Um, so if that last bit seems a little bit casual and flippant, and maybe concerning, one, that just means you're sane because it should seem that way. Um, the fact that she would say, oh, extortion and bribery are in. It's not quid pro quo. Uh, and, and this excerpt, we're not going to dig into a whole other article from Washington Post, but here's an article from, I think it was last week in the Washington Post, that kind of illuminates why that should be a little bit concerning to you. Quote, several Democrats have stopped using the term quid pro quo, instead describing bribery, as a more direct summation of Trump's alleged conduct. The shift came after Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee conducted focus groups in key House battleground states in recent weeks, testing messages related to impeachment. Among the questions put to participants was whether quid pro quo, extortion, or bribery was a more compelling description of Trump's conduct. According to two people familiar with the results, which circulated among Democrats this week. The focus group found bribery to be the most damning. The people spoke on the condition of anonymity because the results have not been made public. So, this is beyond absurd, and it should at least seem, seem that way. Now, if you disagree, I am totally open to that, but to me, this sounds akin to if a prosecutor was maybe potentially thinking about going after someone and he did focus groups with potential jurors of which crime they would be most likely to support. You know, as opposed to saying, hey, I think this guy did X, um, and I'm going to make a case around that. Um, so it seems like it's putting the cart before the horse in a really uh, insidious way, you know, in a really partisan way. Um, because here's, here's the thing. Extortion and bribery are two different things. They are two different things. And so we're going to look at um, the kind of the lingo here and the shift and what is quid pro quo, how should we look at that, and then ex extortion and bribery before we close out. Um, so first off, as they mentioned in the New York Times article, quid pro quo is Latin, it just means this for that. Um, and again, this is not a super uncommon thing whenever it comes to foreign policy. I forgot which GOP member said, yeah, this happens all the time and Trump didn't like that uh, because he's Trump. And so they, they kind of squelched that a little bit. But the point is, is that this does happen pretty regularly. In fact, part of Gordon Sunland's testimony this past week was he said, yeah, you know, the, the headlines were all, everyone was in the loop, everyone knew what was going on. And you could take that as there's an enormous criminal conspiracy happening here. That I suppose it is one way you could take that. Um, you could also take that as the way he said, the next thing he said, which was, none of us thought there was any wrongdoing here because... This type of quid pro quo is so ubiquitous in foreign policy that they had no reason to think there was anything wrong. In fact, here's an amazing example of just how ubiquitous and common this is. Okay, So in the middle of all this impeachment stuff, in the middle of all this leveraging aid against Ukraine, Trump controversy, three weeks ago, here's an article from the Wall Street Journal and The Intercept about something Bernie Sanders said within the last, I think, three or four weeks. Quote, U.S. aid to Israel has emerged as the latest flashpoint in the Democratic presidential primaries, evidence of a split in the party being driven by its resurgent progressive wing. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders said this week that if he were elected president, Israel would have to fundamentally change its relationship to the Gaza Strip, which is the Palestinian enclave controlled by the militant group Hamas, in order to continue receiving aid. Quote, I would use the leverage. $3.8 is a lot of money, and we cannot give it carte blanche to the Israeli gover government, or for that matter, to any government at all. So S Sanders is saying, I would leverage the aid money to Israel 
in order to get them to change their policy on the Gaza Strip. Now, the fact that he just says that in the middle of all of this should tell you that this is not uncommon. Like, he wasn't like, oh, God, will people confuse this with the Trump stuff? It's like, no, people do this all the time. The other thing that's interesting about that is presidents haven't done this in the past with Israel, right? So this is just his preferred policy. He says, I want them, my preference is for them, Israel, them being Israel, to change their policy in regards to the Gaza Strip. And I would leverage this $3.8 billion in aid to them to get them to change their policy. This is just my opinion. This is just something that's important to me. And that's what I would do. And that's not controversial for him to do that. He is well within his rights to do that. I might not agree. Other people clearly don't agree because this hasn't been done before with Israel, but it's just what Bernie Sanders believes in. Similar to, say, if someone thought that there was some meddling by Ukraine or something worth looking at or looking into, that they might leverage aid money in order to have an investigation into corruption. Again, that's an opinion. Just like aid to Israel, that's an, you know, over stuff with Gaza, that's an opinion. So the question isn't, does this happen? The question isn't, was there quid pro quo? Clearly there was. The question is, was it illegitimate? And people think, you know, I, uh, Maria Yanapovich w uh, did her testimony this last week, and she talked about how absurd it was to think about Ukrainian meddling, and, you know, it's just a distraction from Russian meddling. You know, and what people forget, or at least seem to be forgetting, is Trump was very warm to Putin during the run-up to 2016. In fact, Andrew Yang made a joke about it during one of the two times he got to talk during the last round of debates. You know, they said, what would you say to Putin if you were elected? And Yang's response, well, I'd tell him first, I'm sorry, I beat your guy, you know? So there's a, a running joke of how warm towards Putin Donald Trump is. And Russia did this thing whenever Obama was president, you know, where they annexed Crimea from Ukraine. It was an enormous controversy. Con controversy. And so Ukraine was looking at this election going, okay, wait a second. So there's a loose cannon dude named Putin in Russia. And Obama, who was supposed to be kind of harsh towards Russia, allowed him to annex Crimea. And here's a guy who seems like he's BFFs with Putin. My God, what would it look like? What would Russian, Russia's foreign policy towards us in the region generally look like with this guy in the White House? And so Ukraine had an interest in whether or not Donald Trump was elected president because they had every reason to fear Putin and fear what would happen if America was supporting further you know, annexation and further actions by Putin. And so there were pieces that were written that the Ukrainian government, and like Politico, you know, in the, that the Ukrainian government did work to some degree with Hillary Clinton's campaign against Donald Trump and his campaign because they were, I think, understandably afraid of Donald Trump being elected president. And so that's just one question to be asked, you know, about legitimacy of quid pro quo of Donald Trump's. Like, you might disagree, but they could both be true. That's just one question, but they could both be true. Yeah, did Russia meddle? Of course they did. Yeah, that's obvious. We know that. Um, the Mueller report made that very clear, but it can also be true that, that Ukraine at least did some things with the, with Clinton's campaign. Again, Politico reported on it that would make Donald Trump, you know, think about how thin skinned this guy is. Why wouldn't he want to root that out? You know? Um, so that's one question. And then there's a whole other stuff with the, with the Bidens and there's, you know, conspiracy theories about Hillary Clinton's, you know, private servers or whatever. But the question isn't, did quid pro quo happen? It's, is it legitimate or is it illegitimate? Was it illegal? Was it not illegal? And so that's the question to be asked. And so we'll look at bribery and extortion here. But the definition of bribery is really important for this. Um, so there, But to sum that up, there's a reason they're not using quid pro quo because it's not inherently illegal. And it happens so freaking often that Bernie Sanders was talking about how that would be his policy towards Israel in the middle of all this stuff. Like that's really ubiquitous. That should be very telling. Um, that it's very common. Anyway, so here's a legal definition of bribery. Uh, I got this from Find Law. I'll put a link there, but whenever I was getting my undergrad, uh, like in the classes where we'd look up case briefs and legal definitions, this is a website we always used. Um, so I'll link it. Anyway, so bribery is the offer or acceptance of anything of value in exchange for influence on a government, public official, or employee. In general, bribes can take the form of gifts or payments of money in exchange for favorable treatment, such as awards of government contracts. 
Other forms of bribes may include property, various goods, privileges, services, or favors. Now, that, that last one, that favors, is kind of, it is worth noting because Donald Trump did use the term, I'd like you to do me a favor. So fair enough, right? Um, but now that he said that, and then there was a whole other page, and then he mentioned uh, Joe and Hunter Biden. But fair enough, he did say that. There's a whole bunch of other stuff mixed in there. Uh, to continue the definition, bribes are always intended to influence or alter the action of various individuals and go hand in hand with both political and public corruption. No written agreement is necessary to prove this crime, but prosecutors must generally show corrupt intent. They have to show intent. And what that means is they have to say the only reason why he would be interested in this was trying to get Joe Biden. So they have to say that there was no other plausible, there's no reason to be curious about Ukraine wanting to work against his campaign, you know, whatever conspiracy theories he might have had about Hillary Clinton's servers. Um, or the stuff with with Hunter Biden, uh, you know, as well, working for Burisma. You know, I I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't know any of that stuff. But you, they have to say that all of that other stuff is legitimate, and his they have to prove that his only intent was a corrupt thing. Um, so that's even part of the with bribery. Um, and and continuing on, this goes into the extortion part. Another crime associated and often confused with bribery is extortion. The difference is that bribery is offering someone a positive reward for compliance, whereas extortion uses threats of violence or other negative acts in exchange for compliance. Um, you know, what's interesting is whenever they give examples of extortion, they say it's kind of like a, if a mafia guy shows up to your business and says, hey, you should pay me for protection so people don't bust out your windows every night. You know, the implication being, um, if you don't pay me, I'm going to bust out your windows every night. So that's extortion. They can be linked. But it is a different crime than bribery so much that in the definition they say, this can be confused with bribery. Now let's go back to the language being used where they're saying, oh, it's bribery and extortion or, you know, or whatever. Again, that does not make me think that this is a serious quest for truth at this point in time. Again, I think uh, they just, it just came out today that Don McGahn is going to have to testify. They might, you know, I assume they'll call Rudy Giuliani or some of his other associates. So they're just going to keep calling people. Um, you know, ad infinitum on into uh, the next year, I think. But regardless, other things could come out. But right now, they are focus testing which of different crimes to associate with Trump to see what's more popular with voters. Like, that does not scream legitimate process to me. That screams partisan, you know, show. That's it. That's what that tells me. Now, I could be wrong. And I, again, I'm open if you have other thoughts about that. But that's how I'm looking at it right now is whenever you have this um, Democratic, I think it was a congresswoman from Illinois saying, oh, we're not using quid pro quo. It's, it's extortion and bribery. Haven't you heard? Like, that does not scream super serious thing to me when it should be treated as a super serious thing. And the Democrats, I think, right now appear to be making quite a gamble because they're saying, all right, so look, this is going to come down to who people, I think, blame for this in a lot of ways. Either they're going to blame, you know, because we've had, it'll be for like four years of investigations and, and trials and stuff. And so the, are they going to blame Trump and say, we just want to go back to something normal? And, you know, this guy is so corrupt or whatever. We just want to get someone normal in there. Or are voters going to say, oh my God, like the Democrats look really petty. They just keep doing thing after thing. We had two, year, two years of the Mueller stuff that turned out to be nothing. Stuff with Kavanaugh, whatever. And so, you know, who's going to be more just completely turned off by the other party as opposed to who is more excited about their party? Um, and so I think they, they understand that right now, and that's why they're focus testing this stuff. Um, so anyway, that's how I see it right now. That's the lens that I'm looking at it through is it seems to be all like a, a partisan show. Um, the, one of the reasons, again, why they're focus testing this, trying to get public support for it. Again, if the dude committed a crime... Say, here's the crime, here's the evidence, here's articles of impeachment, throw it over to the Senate, the end. Um, but if they're trying to get public support, that tells me that they want the people to go through the motions. And they want people to, to be against Trump and against him because they know that it won't pass in the Senate. Because as of right now, there's nothing there. And so I think they're trying to drum up support, you know, kind of in the court of public opinion against Trump right now. That, again, that's how it appears right now. Anything could change. A lot like Don McGahn's testimony could change that. If Rudy Giuliani testifies, that could change that. But right now, if you're trying to focus test which crime you want to pick that people might like more, 
that I'm not taking it super seriously as a result of that. Um, so anyway, that's an update on impeachment. Like I said, I, I had a whole bunch of other stuff that I wanted to talk about. Um, there's people hating on Elon Musk because he's donating, uh, I think it's almost $100 million to help homeless people, and there's a bunch of socialists pissed off as a result of it. That's worth digging into. Um, stuff with Taylor Swift and Scooter Braun and kind of some of the support that she's gotten from strange corners of the Democratic Party uh, that are, it's, it's very unusual to me. I also want to talk about Charlie's Angels flopping and Elizabeth Banks is pretty pissed off about that and how she's catching some flack for kind of her explanation for why Charlie's Angels flopped. And then there's a really interesting free speech case out of Indiana University uh, that I want to talk about, but I'm not going to get to that tonight. Um, but I will be addressing those things next time, so be sure to tune in. Uh, those of you who watch, I really appreciate you um, tuning in. Uh, again, if you have any thoughts, if you think I missed anything, if you think I was unfair uh, or mischaracterized anything, please let me know in the comments, shoot me a message, whatever. I'm always open to that feedback. I really do try to be as objective about these things as possible and try to look at things from a fact-based standpoint uh, exclusively, and then commentary can come after that. Uh, anyway. So yeah, please be sure to like, share, subscribe, check out my YouTube channel um, and subscribe to that. Really appreciate it. Follow me on Twitter. I say this in every video. I've got to stop, but uh, I think my Twitter is pretty good. Just saying. Um, anyway, that's at My Monday Mind. I'll put a link to that um, in the comments or description for this. And again, I'll have all the sources here. So again, if there's anything that you have a problem with or you think that I mischaracterized, here's the sources. You know, you can give me your feedback. I always welcome that. Um, anyway. That's it. Thanks for watching. And oh, lastly, I think I'm probably going to try and do a short video, uh, maybe Wednesday morning or Thursday morning, something about Thanksgiving. I kind of want to talk about, you know, going into the holidays, whether it's Thanksgiving or Christmas and how this is, this stuff can be so contentious. And, you know, I kind of just want to get my thoughts on how we should be dealing with that going in, you know, talking to family, friends, whatever. Um, because I, I just don't want this stuff to ruin relationships. Like it has been ruining relationships. So anyway, that's it. Thanks again for watching, and I will uh, check you next time. Have a good one.